Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. There are many people who are heroic in our history, but until a book is written, they remain unknown to many of us. That is the case with today's subject. Many in the Black community may know the name Walter F. White, but I'd guess that not many white people know of him. He was a hero and should be known by all communities. Our guest today, A.J. Bame, has written a book, White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. A.J. Bame is a New York Times bestselling author whose books are frequently optioned for film or limited series television. He has been a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal since 2010. I am pleased to introduce A.J. Bame to Politics, A Love Story. Hi, AJ. Um, how did you come across Walter and decide to write about him? It's a book that I felt had to be written. Well, uh, it's certainly a good one. And I would recommend to the listening audience to uh, get a copy and read it. It could be infuriating at times, but it is very uh, interesting and worthwhile the time one spends. Uh, we'll start with uh, September 22nd, 1906, the Atlanta riots. Um, there's some interesting things that came out of that. First of all, that's the hometown of Walter White, and he saw some of the, uh, the rioting going on in the aftermath. Uh, and what's also interesting uh, is that the white man and the Negro have lived together in this city more peacefully and in better spirit than any other city, either the North or the South. That was a quote that was uh, spoken by, and I'm not sure I know the individual, but the fact is, yes, uh, this happens all over the world where two different communities uh, with different ethos and uh, and whether it be traditions or religions, but they live peacefully for sometimes hundreds of years. And then all of a sudden there's a trigger moment. Uh, what was the trigger moment here? Well, that's a great question. So let me just set a little context here. So Walter grows up in, uh, in Atlanta. Um, he is, he thinks of himself as the enigma of a black person in who has white skin. Right. So uh, he, he, he has a very strange existence growing up in Atlanta. Atlanta is the capital of the progressive South. Uh, it was said that people are making too much money to con be concerned about um, racial problems um, at, at, when he was young. Um, in the early part of the century, there was uh, a, an agrarian depression all around the South that put financial stress on all kinds of things. And then there was a gubernatorial election in 1906 in which you had two candidates who were really going about trying to get white voters out. Um, and basically these two things, both of these candidates owned newspapers and through all of this happening, uh, there became suddenly a tremendous amount of racial stress in the city of Atlanta. So on that day, Walter goes out, his father's a mailman. Uh, Walter went to a black school uh, black church um, and uh, raised in a black family and his father's a mailman. They go out on this route to deliver the mail and they have this horrible feeling because it's being reported in the newspapers that something's going to be happening, something terrible. Um, and indeed something terrible does happen. And Walter, he's just, I think, uh, I forget, he's, I think he's 12 years old, might be 11 years old at this time. 
And he sees the act of murder, numerous murders on the streets of Atlanta at this at this young age. Uh, and this becomes sort of the foundation of his life's work. Um, he knows at that time that he's going to ded- dedicate his whole life to finding a way to erase the color line in America. And it's interesting, in the very beginning of the book, you have a picture of Walter White. And um, he certainly looks nothing like what we would consider a person of color to look like. None of the other features uh, that are there. And that's why he was able to uh, go undercover as either a white man or a black man and do some of his things. But I'm jumping ahead. Uh, One of the other notes you have here in 1902, the prevailing notion at the time was that people in Atlanta were making too much money to have time to worry about race. Uh, That's an interesting point, and that's part of what I was saying before. But as you point out, uh, I guess some people would call it the fake media of the time when the two newspaper owners who were running against one another for the position of governor of the state of Georgia, uh, that's yellow journalism at its worst, the things that were said. And uh, of course, that's happened all throughout history. I remember that even Thomas Jefferson had things that he got into the newspapers for the election of 1800 that disparaged John Adams and that weren't true at all. Uh, so it goes back a long way. It does indeed. And, you know, it's it's fascinating. The control of information is the control of power. Right. Um, and, you know, I like to think that I don't like to think I believe that a lot of the problems we have today has to do with the death of local media, the death of local newspapers, where everybody is getting all of their information from either one source on, on the left or one source on the right. It was the same in, in Walter's time in that these newspaper owners knew how powerful they were um, and they used their newspapers to inflame white voters and and to try to what they said, whiten the vote. They wanted to disenfranchise black voters. And um, that's, in fact, what happened. So after the Atlanta election in 1906, I think the state constitution passed in 1908. So Walter, when he was growing up here, he was living in this peaceful city. Uh, and by the time he's, you know, old enough to vote, the you know, it's illegal. He cannot vote. And what's interesting is that while I was reading your book, I found I was comparing so many things that were happening over 100 years ago to things that are, again, happening today. And it's appalling to think about that. And I wonder, all the efforts that Walter and all his uh, colleagues had done to help get the, the Black community away from disenfranchisement, disenfranchisement and how some people in the South are trying to do that again today. Well, I think, you know, it's it's incredible to me. When I started writing this book years ago, I could have no understanding of the environment I would be living in when the book came out. Mm-hmm. And it's a little scary, you know, because people are angry and inflamed and touchy. And this book touches on pretty much every single taboo you can imagine. It's in this book. Um, but it does shock me. And it's not just that we're still arguing over, you know, who should be allowed to vote and who should not be. It's also taking place to some degree in the state of Georgia, 
where Walter grows up and where, you know, uh, African-Americans are allowed to vote until this key moment in his childhood where all of a sudden, not just in Georgia, but in Alabama, all over the South, you see the disenfranchisement of black voters. It becomes illegal for black people to vote for for decades. It does. And um, Walter White described the changing situation, as you point out, compounded of fear, guilt, greed and humiliation the South was developing a psychosis. That's exactly right. When I I was researching, I believe I found that at a document at Yale University where Walter's papers, a lot of his papers are. And when that was an unpublished article that he wrote. So he wrote this article about that time, never published. Uh, it's typewritten. It's got his handwritten notes all over it. And I remember reading that sentence and I'm like, that's the sentence. That captures in you know great economy of words, um, how he felt about what was happening in his home city uh, uh, and all over the South at that time. And about 10 years before the Atlanta riots, there was the Supreme Court decision Plessy v. Ferguson, which gave legal sanction to segregation, the separate but equal uh, doctrine that was handed down. Uh, That gave the South, the, the white Democratic South, the opportunity to further subjugate Black people. Absolutely. The separate but equal law was devastating, devastating to the, to the Black race. And what happened was this. Uh, well, let's talk about Walter specifically. So uh, a few years after the Atlanta race riot, he becomes, uh, he graduates college, goes to um, a Black university, Atlanta University, and he gets a job selling insurance. And there's this moment in Atlanta where um, the Atlanta school board decides, announces that they're going to cancel the seventh grade for black students so they can build uh, a new public school, high school for, for, for white students. And Walter and his friends come together and they say, this is wrong. How can this be separate but equal when, when they're going to build a new high school for white students, but black people don't even have schools at all, public funded schools? Uh, and that begins, so that begins his uh, his life's work. That's really what turns him into an activist. And I want to make sure that listeners understand this is a person who, when he was young, looked in the mirror, uh, and it was really the Atlanta race riot that forced him to look in the mirror and ask himself who he was. He was a Black person. He identified as Black. He came from a Black family who uh, his parents were the uh, of the last generation born into enslaved families. They could talk about the slave era from memory, but Walter had white skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes. And he knew at a young age that he had to make a decision of who he was going to identify with and how he was going to live his life. And it was the Atlanta race riot that made him say, hey, I knew, literally, this is his words, I knew which side I was on. Well, and I'm reading some various quotes that don't really get to Walter just yet. I'm trying to set the table for the discussion we're going to have and why he felt it important for him to go undercover and find out all the things that wouldn't be told otherwise. The the time, the tone and tenor of the time. So there was another quote, those who have been determined to maintain a degraded status for the Negro have shrewdly concentrated on taking from him the most potent weapon in defense, the right to vote. So you said that was the thing that was outlawed was blacks being allowed to vote anymore, whether by law or by intimidation. And then the governor of, uh, well, the, the man who became governor of Mississippi explained 
about Mississippi's Constitutional Convention of 1890. It was held for no other purpose than to eliminate, and excuse my using the word, the nigger from politics. And that's a quote. Uh, that, that's, and then, as you point out, the variations of the Mississippi plan appeared in South Carolina in 1895, Louisiana in 1898, North Carolina in 1900, and Alabama in, two, in 1901 and Virginia in 1902. So the South is going out of their way to eliminate the vote for a black person. That's absolutely true. And if you think about it, think about during this era, there's an agrarian uh, recession. Um, people are struggling for, you know, there's a lot of people who were poor and struggling in competition for resources. And this is the way for white America in the South at that time to render black people totally powerless, because if they were not allowed to vote, they had no way to uh, pretty much do anything. They were not represented on school boards. They were not, you know, for the most part represented in law enforcement. And so if anything bad ever happened, they had no recourse, uh, sometimes no recourse to the law. And that brings us to now in 1917, when uh, the Atlanta branch of the NAACP was born in April of 1917, and Walter White was a charter member. It was, spring, it was a springtime dominated by news of war in Europe. However, in the U.S., a new domestic war was in the making, one that would never be declared in any official sense but would nonetheless make the bloodiest mark on the country since 1865. Uh, those were nice words that you put together there. Thank you. Thank you. I think what, you know, you're, I was referring to is, you know, if we can tell the story, Walter gets plucked from obscurity uh, by a man named J James Weldon Johnson. And hopefully that name rings a bell for some listeners. Uh, an extraordinary, extraordinary man, somebody that, that, you know, he's one of those men that, you know, people that say, if you could ever have lunch with someone, who would it be? He would be on my list. Just a fascinating human. And he plucks Walter from obscurity, brings him to New York uh, in 1918, brings him to Harlem to work for the NAACP, which at that time, very few people had heard of. It was very small, very new uh, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Uh, and right when Walter gets there, World War One is ending and a number of soldiers, black soldiers who had fought for their country overseas come back and they're going to demand rights. They're going to say, you know, if I'm willing to fight and die for my country, I deserve rights here that, that the, the Bill of Rights should apply to black people as well as white. Uh, and that create that tension created an explosion of racial violence right at the time Walter begins to work for the NAACP. Well, you, uh, you tell of many incidents, uh, not just of the lynchings and the shootings and the burnings, but one in particular was of a returning black soldier still in uniform who was grabbed off of a bus, I believe, and beaten. And was he blinded? Uh, am I conflating various stories? He was blinded. His name is Isaac Woodard. And that actually happened later in 1946. Oh, um, the other so, war. <laughs> uh, uh, exactly. Another war. Um, what happened after World War One was this outbreak of violence in 1918. And more importantly, what we call the Red Summer of 1919. Uh, the Red Summer being named by James Weldon Johnson because it was so bloody. Yeah. Uh, 
That's right. I have that as the summer of 1919 Red Scare. And then Texas. What happened in Texas around that time? Uh, during the Red Summer of 1919, uh, the state of Texas um, uh, tried to declare the NAACP defunct. Basically, the state was saying the NAACP had been uh, incorporated in New York City and had no right to function in the state of Texas and was trying to essentially shut the NAACP down. Now, at that time, uh, the NAACP was very much a biracial organization. So you had black people and white people working together in these offices, still pretty small. And the chief executive was named John Shalady. He was an Irish American uh, and he decided that uh, there's this very poignant scene where he sits with Mary White Ovington. This is another incredible character, one of the founders of the NAACP. And he says to her, I think I should go to Texas and see if I can straighten this out. Do you think anything could happen to me? Is it dangerous? And she looks at him and says, I don't think so. You know, something could happen, but not to you. Uh, he takes this long train ride at the time. It, it wasn't easy to get to Texas from New York. You can imagine he's on the train for quite a long time. He gets there. He meets with state officials and uh, they have this conversation. I'm, I found documents. So I know exactly what was said uh, in those conversations. And afterward, John Shalady was beaten senseless on the street by state officials in the state of Texas. Uh, he came back to New York and had a nervous breakdown and was never heard from him again. He left the NAACP and disappeared. I don't. I couldn't even find in my research what had happened to him, and um, uh, nobody was ever charged with the crime. And the governor of the state of Texas said, "You know, hey, if anybody's going to come and try to provoke, you know, what he thought was provoke, you know, some sort of, you know, agitation, this is what's going to happen." So he defended the beating. You know, AJ, the thing that was most frustrating as a reader. And I can imagine the frustration that Walter White felt because he investigated, as he points out, uh, 40 or some odd lynchings, eight race riots, and I don't know how many burnings and shootings. And yet not one person was convicted of a crime, even when he had the evidence of who the people who were involved were, not just their names, but their addresses. So this I can't imagine having lived in that time uh, in that organization and the frustration that everyone must have felt. What about when you were writing about this? Did you feel that same frustration? Well, Bob, the, the, the Los Angeles Times did a great piece on the book and quoted me somewhat embarrassingly saying that I cried every day I wrote this book. And that might be a slight exaggeration, but not by much. It was, um, you know, writing about any book that I write. I try to, um, my books are a little non-traditional um, uh, in, in so much as that I try to not just report the facts um, and make people understand what happened in another time, but I want them to feel, I want them to feel the, the feelings that the characters felt. That's my goal as a writer. Um, and yes, you can imagine that the anger and the frustration that Walter and his colleagues felt. And, you know, obviously a lot of your listeners haven't read the book yet, but what happens is Walter, at, when he begins at the NAACP, he uh, reads, it's his 12th day there, it's 1918, and he reads about um, the burning, the torture, the burning at the stake of a Black man accused of killing somebody. And I think he was actually guilty of the killing. His name was James McElheron. It was reported in the New York Times. 
Walter reads this article in the newspaper on his way to work. And he says, he gets to work and he gathers with his colleague and he says, why don't I go down there and get the facts? Because I can pose as a white man. They won't know I'm black. And so he goes down there and he gets the facts and he writes this article that causes a sensation. And that's the beginning of his career as this undercover investigator. Yes, he, 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 he conducts, I think, 40 undercover investigations as posing as a white man. Uh, and he, the, the audacity and the ambition uh, is it's almost unimaginable. And this is in Estill Springs, Tennessee, is it not? That is correct. Yes. Very small yeah. town. And what's interesting is the the uh, the disagreement. Uh, there were people say up to fifteen hundred white people in a mob, and the sheriff was trying to say, "Oh no, there are only twenty five because that was the threshold as to whether uh, it was a mob violent thing or not. And yet uh, there were. I mean. You couldn't put it any other way. Of course, no pictures were taken. That no, Not everybody had a cell phone in those days or anybody uh, to be able to just whip it out and take a picture. But uh, that was a terrible thing. Uh, you seized on something very important because, again, it's the control of information hmm. uh, that is that is what empowers people. And in a small town, where blacks were disenfranchised, they weren't represented in law enforcement, in government, in school board, anywhere. They were not allowed to vote. They had no recourse. So these things happened. Walter investigated some ritualistic uh, murders and it, that occurred before crowds larger than some at Major League Baseball games. And in 40 investigations, there were never any arrests. And I was able to like build these scenes and we have all the documentation. So we know this happened on two different occasions. He barged into the governor's office once in Arkansas and once in Georgia and produced these documents saying, this is who the killers are. Here are their names. Here's where they work. I was able to find this information easily and yet still no arrests were made. Yeah. Um, it was just a, a thought that popped out of my mind while you were speaking um, we were talking about uh, the investigations. Well, in any event, we'll go on to the next thing. Um, when uh, Walter spoke in Jacksonville, Florida, he told his audience that America was at war. 400,000 Black Americans were in uniform, serving their country, in some cases giving their lives for the cause of justice and democracy at home. If a black man could be drafted, if he could be made to die for his country, should he not be allowed to sit next to a white person in a bus? Uh, that was a very cogent question to ask. And this was something that I don't know what the rationalization was, that you're sending people to die, but you won't allow them to sit on a bus. Now, I have to admit, I was in... Miami Beach, Florida, in uh, from August 1956 to October 1957. In the beginning of my stay there, uh, they had Jim Crow laws in Miami Beach. I got on a bus and I was uh, born and raised in the Bronx. And my mother taught me, if an older person or a woman comes in, you give up your seat. 
an older black woman was walking down the aisle and I got up to give her my seat. And she says, no, honey, look at the sign. And behind me, I saw this sign, uh, people of color behind this line. I I didn't equate with anything that I knew. Now, before I left in uh, October of 57, they had changed the law. Uh, But that was a rude awakening for me about what living in the Jim Crow South was like, and I wasn't a black person. Well, that, that's that's an, an, an important point. And you have to imagine, like, you know, in the separate but equal era, the Jim Crow era, uh, buses, trains, elevators, these were places that uh, black and white people found themselves commingling. And they were very specific rules in place. Now, imagine what it was like for Walter as a child growing up with his parents where in Atlanta, if you took a streetcar, if you were black, you would have to go to the back and sit in the back seats and slowly go as far back as you could and slowly find the furthest seat in the back that you could. If you were white, you would go all the way to the front and find the furthest seat front that you could. And if Walter's family got on a a, a, a streetcar and sat in the back, um, people would be horrified and they'd be yelled at in public. Uh, if they sat in the front, they would see people they who knew them and would be horrified. So the streetcars pose a very specific problem. And I think that's probably the place that Walter learned as a child uh, what he was going to be up against in the future. Uh, One of his travels was to Valdosta, Georgia, to investigate other lynchings and killings. He found that 11 people, not the six reported, had been shot or burned or lynched. He wrote a report, and as you were mentioning before, handed it to Georgia's governor, Hugh M. Dorsey. He identified 13 members of the mob by name, and in some cases, their addresses. Copies of the report were sent to the leading newspapers of the day, as well as to to President Woodrow Wilson, who made a statement to make an end of disgraceful evil. But he didn't, did he? He didn't. No, he didn't. And as a matter of fact, right around uh, before that time, since you mentioned Woodrow Wilson, there was a movie that came out called Birth of a Nation. Yes, D.W. Griffith. And this was the very was the first Hollywood blockbuster of all time and the first Hollywood movie ever shown in the White House to President Wilson. And that movie had a horrific effect of cementing in the minds of white people at the time that, you know, what black people were and lauding the KKK, um, uh, Woodrow Wilson, you know, uh, his name, he's still a controversial person because of the way he handled race in his presidency. We're still reading about how Princeton University is going to, you know, respond to having buildings named after him. Uh, it's, it, it, it amazes me. But that case that you're referring to specifically is another one of those cases that became one of the most famous, possibly, that Walter investigated, posing as a white man undercover. He goes down there ingratiates himself into the white communities of these tiny towns around Valdosta and gets the facts. And um, there was one specific thing that happened there that he discovered that was so heartbreaking uh, regarding the murder of a woman. And uh, he found her gravesite was marked by an empty whiskey bottle sticking out of the ground with a cigar sticking out of the top of it. And Walter used that case to, uh, um, really in his speaking engagements. He traveled the country telling people what had happened and that nobody 
was arrested for the murder of a woman named Mary Turner. I believe the place that she was murdered, there's a monument to her now. Walter spread the word of Mary Turner's story around the country, and I think it, it, it shocked a lot of people, uh, and it really helped to spread the word of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, um, because people were so horrified by that case, they wanted to know how they could help, and so they joined. But as you point out, uh, Walter White's investigation had sp- sparked more publicity than the NAACP had seen before. And as before, nothing happened to the perpetrators. That's correct. So, um, again, it's heartbreaking. At this, around, you know, it's, it's a little later in the book. The first half is about these investigations, essentially. And the second half is about how Walter became a political powerhouse, because he realizes that if he's going to continue conducting these for 10 years, he did this over 10 years. He conducted these investigations. Everyone was more dangerous than the one in the past because these investigations made him famous. He was becoming famous and, you know, nationwide. And so it was dangerous because it was more likely that his identity would be learned when he was going undercover. But he realizes at some point, you know what? These investigations are causing a sensation. They're helping to grow the NAACP, but they're not getting anywhere. They're not getting anyone arrested. Nobody is being held accountable. And he realizes that the racism is systemic. And so he goes after the systems themselves. And by that, I mean, he launches himself into politics and all of the maniacal ambition uh, uh, that he put into this early part of his life in these investigations, he turned to politics and ultimately to the White House. You know, AJ, because of your work, we're learning about how despicable some of these states were back in the 1800s, the early 1900s. And yet these are the same states that are passing laws that try to obliterate their history. There's well, a certain irony there. I think it's true. And, and, and you know, the, the fact is, I think a lot of people they, they don't just know the story of Walter White. I think a tremendous number of Americans are blind to the history of race in our country at all. They know nothing about it. And that's why they're so afraid of critical race theory. I mean, that's more a college level course, but it talks about the institutionalization of race, racism, I mean, uh, how this is ingrained into our, the fabric of our country. It's written into the Constitution, in a sense, and also into all of our major institutions, housing, banking. Uh, there is racism throughout. That's correct. I don't really know much about the argument of critical race theory today. I have to be honest with you. But one thing I can say is the subtitle of the book, it's called White Lies. The subtitle is The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. And there's a number of ways, that a couple. Well, there's really two ways to interpret what it is I'm trying to get at when I say America's darkest secret. And one of them is, I think to me is really important because it's just so simple to understand and so logical that we have these documents. We have something called the bill of rights. That's why the epigraphs for these books are the 14th and the 15th amendment. It's the first thing you see and I'll read it. The 14th amendment. Give me a moment. Sure. No state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And the first half of this book is all about people being denied life, liberty, and property. That's it. It's so elemental. It's so logical to understand. And the same with the 15th Amendment. 
So what I'm getting about when I'm talking about America's darkest secret, one of the things I'm getting about getting at is the obvious gap between the documents that we all call our, you know, that, that founded our country and the people, you know, patriots rally around the Constitution. But the hypocrisy of what's in those documents and the reality of what America was at that time was obvious to many people who cared to think about it. And it's also changing back again due to the Supreme Court. Now that we have six much more conservative uh, members of the Supreme Court, uh, first of all, they're trying to uh, eliminate the executive branch and the regulatory systems. They're also uh, taking away uh, voting rights of black people. Uh, by Roberts writing the majority opinion uh, for um, the gutting of the Civil Rights Act, uh, taking out, what was that, uh, Section 5, the preclearance that was necessary, all these other states wrote new laws that took advantage of that. So as I said earlier in our conversation, we're going back to where we were. Well, there's absolutely no doubt that this is a critical, critical time in our country's history. Um, when I began writing this book, I think I already said this years ago, I had no idea that we would be in the situation where we are now. Um, and it's scary because you come out with a book like this and a lot of people are going to find it inflammatory, um, you know, and I'm not an inflammatory person. I'm a very quiet, humble, kind person. That's who I've set out to be my whole life. So it's not comfortable for me to come out with this book at this time, but I can't imagine a more important time for a book like this to come out because I hope people read it and they understand all of these things that are happening in our country come from somewhere. So this is the perfect opportunity. Uh, you're giving me the segue to reintroduce you for those people who are just tuning in. We are Politics, a Love Story. Our guest today is A.J. Bame, author of his new book, White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. And I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Um, one of the other things we talked about uh, the year 1919 and the summer, the Red Scare and Texas. But two other things occurred that year that are notable. Number one, prohibition starts. And two, women, but not black women, are allowed to vote. Uh, those are pretty momentous events that occur. And yet in Harlem, the prohibition made no difference during those years that it was in force. Well, yeah, I mean, listen, Walter gets to Harlem at a really critical and exciting time because uh, Harlem is just being founded. And I go into a little bit about the whole idea that, you know, the most important cultural shift that's happening pretty much across the world of a non-racial substance was the movement of people from farms to, to cities. Uh, this, the city is becoming... Uh, the focus of human life. That's where everything is happening. That's where, you know, journalism is happening. That's where innovation is happening. That's where arts and theater and all of these things are occurring. But Harlem specifically was important because it was the first metropolis that had, you know, an international reputation that was 
African-American. So he gets there right when Harlem is really coming together. 20 years before he gets there, it was a white community. It all happened very quickly. But um, after World War I, uh, Walter moves to Harlem and there he sees this artistic movement brewing. And he learns from his mentor, James Weldon Johnson, that the two greatest things that could you know, um, empower the black race were activism, but also the arts. James Weldon Johnson had taught him that any race can be judged by not its wealth, not its most famous people, but the literature it produces. And so Walter sees this all of a sudden in Harlem, this flowering of the arts movement in, in singing, opera, theater, literature, novels, poetry. And he sets out to, uh, he wants to become a famous novelist. He's, he has a tremendous thirst for fame and ambition, almost embarrassingly so. He was very cocky. Um, and so he sets out to become, right at the beginning of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, sort of w- one of its most important figures. And he succeeds. And you also point out how he mentored or at least promoted uh, some of those people in the arts. Uh, so he was, let's see, he brought Paul Robeson, uh, a very famous singer, to prominence. Uh, County Cullen, who became the best known new poet of Harlem. Langston Hughes and Claude McKay, poets, and Jane Toomer, uh, a famous novelist in the time, uh, among others. Uh, So he was very instrumental in promoting the arts in Harlem. He was. And, you know, it's important to point out that Walter was not loved or even well-liked by everyone. Uh, He had a lot of enemies. He was very cocky. He could be manipulative. But one of the most endearing things I found in my research, years and years of research, were all of the letters he wrote promoting the talents of the people around him. He wanted fame and success for Paul Robeson, for Roland Hayes, for all of these people around him. He wanted to lift them up and promote. So he became sort of like the unofficial press officer of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and the, the, the response was tremendous. He was promoting these people and they would write him, thanking him because you know he was trying to change their lives for the better. And they knew it. So these people were becoming famous, not just in Harlem, but all across the country and even Europe. These singers that he was promoting would go over to Europe and and send Walter the clips of their reviews. And, and he would write them back saying, like, he, he, he couldn't have been happier if it was his own success. That's what he was saying. And getting back to his investigations, uh, he traveled to Shubuta. I think I'm pronouncing that OK. All right. I believe so. Okay, Shibuta, Mississippi, to investigate the murders of four young Black Americans. In his scathing internal NAACP report, quoting an example of democracy in Mississippi, he juxtaposed the patriotic fight for democracy overseas with the lack of it in Shibuta. That's correct. He's just pointing out the fact that, you know, this is just after the Great War, and, you know, again, he's pointing out the, the shocking gap between the Bill of Rights and the, re, the, the America of, re, you know, what that really existed. That was a specifically difficult part to write about because the case, that murder case, the facts were so gruesome uh, that I really struggled with how much to put in the book because I wanted people to understand what was happening and how horrific these things were and that nobody was ever charged for those crimes. But um, I didn't want to make it, you know, 
I didn't want to go over the top because it was it was difficult to stomach. So I think uh, I, I left a lot of the details out of the book, and I think that was a good decision. And then in 1920, at a gathering, Walter told a friend, I am an all or nothing man. I don't believe that half a loaf is better than none or half a life. Lincoln said a country cannot exist half slave and half free. Neither can an individual. I am sick and tired of the yes, but people. I want to shake some guts into them. It's a mixed up metaphor, but that's just what they need. They are for you, but they are against you. Yes, no, maybe not yet. He was pretty impatient and disgusted with uh, the world around him to some degree, wasn't he? He was. And when I put that in the book, I wanted to really capture his voice. I wanted to just let him talk because he that wasn't a moment where he was writing a newspaper column or a speech. That was what he sounded like at a at a you know cocktail party. That was his voice. He was um, he would talk, you know, sometimes people compare others to wind up dolls because they start and they can't stop. And uh, and that was that was Walter White. Yeah. And uh, during that time, a phrase came into the popular lexicon that embodied the new spirit. It appeared in a headline in the Harlem magazine, The Messenger, in 1920. The new Negro. What is he? Soon the term was spreading across the urban centers westward. The new Negro, unlike the old time Negro, does not fear the face of the day, proclaimed the Kansas City call. The time for cringing is over. That's, that's the beginning of the Harlem Renaissance um, that was happening not just in Harlem, but um, it had something to do with economics. Um, you know, uh, uh, there was a recession after World War I, I believe, but soon after that, the economy started doing really well. That's why we call it to some degree, you know, the roaring 1920s. Yep. Uh, and for the first time, you know, Black America was experiencing some of that economic, you know, some of that wealth, particularly in Harlem. What, what, I believe that Rudolph Fisher, the writer who said, you know, at that time, everybody in Harlem had money. And um, so there were all sorts of different ways that, you know, uh, the race was empowering itself, organizing, um, educating. Um, that's, that's what is meant by that term, the new Negro. Now, there is another interesting player uh, that came on the scene. His name was Marcus Garvey. Could you give us a bit of an explanation about his impact and what his ideas were? Marcus, it's, I cannot um, overstate, or is it understate? I, I can't express the shock to Harlem that Mar Marcus Garvey delivered. His rise, the speed of his rise, and the speed of his fall. But basically, he, his reputation exploded on the scene in Harlem and then all over the world. Um, he was born in Jamaica. Um, he was not formally educated. And he became this figure, uh, basically founding a movement of Black nationalism. He believed that um, Black people should have nothing to do with white people, which was the opposite of what the NAACP supported. Um, and he quickly... He, he was an amazing speaker and organizer, and he quickly gathered a massive movement that went, you know, again, nationwide and across the world. Uh, but then he made some financial uh, uh, mistakes and ultimately went to prison. Um, 
But uh, the point I think that I wanted to make about him and why he's in the book is because his rise happened very quickly, right around the time that Walter arrived in New York. And his message was the opposite of the NAACP's. And um, he failed, um, but his reputation sort of sticks with us still. He, uh, a lot of the civil rights movement, the people of that movement in the 60s really supported Garvey's idea that, uh, that um, essentially um, clashed with what the NAACP was, was after at that time. Well, as you point out, AJ, um, it was Malcolm X who followed in the footsteps, in a sense, at least theoretically, of Marcus Garvey, the segregation uh, of blacks from whites. That was what the South was trying to do. But then there were those like Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X who wanted to do that all over. I agree. And th- the movement, the, the movement of empowerment uh, from uh, starting in the 1920s, you know, Walter and the NAACP, they were trying to organize because through organization and togetherness, that was the way to to move forward, they believe. But really politically, artistically, but more important, sociologically, but really politically, starting in the 1930s, the movement really split uh, into many different sort of directions. And that had a lot to do with the Great Depression. There was a lot of, um, you know, uh, uh, um, a lot of people at that time during the Great Depression could really um, understand the ethos of communism. So communism became a political, political force, not just among black, but also white people. Um, uh, and the, the point I want to make is Walter was, uh, becoming more, more powerful, becomes chief executive of the NAACP in 1930. And his movement, his ideas were very mainstream. He wanted to, um, simply erase the color line. There should be no difference between black and white. He didn't embrace communism. He wanted to embrace mainstream politics. And he thought that all roads ended at the White House. That was the seat of power. And so he was willing to make sacrifices and to make enemies um, by stay, keeping his politics mainstream and uh, anti-communist, uh, anti-fascist. Um, uh, and yeah, we can talk a little more about his his politics, because really the second half of the book becomes about politics. Yes, because somebody had given him a piece of advice and they said was uh, black people should not continue to tie themselves to the Republican Party blindly. Just because Lincoln, a Republican, freed the slaves does not mean you shouldn't use your power for betterment in other ways. And that's when there was an aha moment for Walter White, according to what you wrote in your book. And uh, that's when he started to move. In fact, he then eventually became friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, spent time uh, with uh, FDR in the Oval Office. And then after he died with uh, Harry Truman in the Oval Office again. So yes, he saw political power lobbying using the I don't know, there were 20 million black people in the country at that time, using that as a force for their betterment, not for just moving the Republican Party. That's right. And just so people are clear, you know, uh, when Walter was started, when he became chief executive of the NAACP in 1930, um, it was considered um, it would have been a shock to anyone for a black person to vote for any candidate who is not a Republican. Because Republicans were the party of Lincoln. Lincoln was the man who freed the slaves. 
And uh, Walter realized that by just automatically voting for the Republican Party took all the power away because the Republican Party wasn't doing anything for African-Americans. As a matter of fact, Walter at one point went to the Republican um, National Convention. I'm trying to remember the specific year, but there was a seating section for black people that was roped off with chicken wire. And he said, you know what? The Republican Party is not doing anything for us. We need to begin voting independently. We need to be demanding more from our candidates. And ultimately, he engineers this historic shift. He's the most powerful powerful force in this historic shift of Black voting power from the Republican Party, where it had been for generations, over to the Democrats, where it remains today. So 1932 was the first time you saw that shift begin to happen. Um, because Walter was working on FDR, pushing FDR uh, to get behind the civil rights movement, using Eleanor, his great friend, to convince the president to to make these political sacrifices. And ultimately, in 1936, for the first time ever, Black Americans vote overwhelmingly for the Democrats. I think it was 70 percent of the Black vote went to Democrats rather than to Republicans. Yes. Uh, There was another uh, thing. By leveraging the power of the numbers and also his personality, Walter was able to move quite far in the political circles of that time. And it's amazing because I guess when people met him, uh, they didn't realize that he was a black man to start with. So they were more open maybe to engaging with him because they saw another white man there. Uh, it was only later that they understood a little bit better. That's correct. And that's why the book is called The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. The first half is really about his investigations where he's going undercover as a white man, posing as a white man to investigate these murders, while at the same time living openly in Harlem as a black man and a powerful figure in the Harlem Renaissance. So his story illuminates both of those worlds. But in the second half of the book, where it's a lot about him becoming this political force, Again, he's he's living openly in white high society with powerful white politicians. At the same time, he's the most powerful um, black figure uh, in, in the civil rights realm of this day. Yeah. And um, one of the things you wrote, A.J., was that Walter White passed as a white man, but not for the reasons that others did. He crossed over to become an agent of change, a crime fighter. In 1922, he wrote an article in the New York Evening Post about his undercover life titled The Exploits of a Colored Investigator of Lynchings. Uh, he, yeah, was, he, he was furiously ambitious. He wanted fame. And that, something's very curious about his character. All his, all his life, um, there, there was this strange sort of quest for notoriety um, that didn't always endear him to everyone around him, but made him more powerful. And throughout his life, you see him becoming more and more powerful until the, he has these historic meetings with Harry Truman and gets Harry Truman behind the civil rights movement, gets Harry Truman to be the first president to address the NAACP in person at that annual meeting at the foot of the Washington uh, Lincoln Monument. He gets uh, Truman to integrate the military. Uh, by executive order, this historic thing that shocked the country. Um, that, a lot of that had to do with Walter's relationship with Harry Truman. Yeah. And um, I don't know how overt that information uh, was at the time. 
but we're sure that Walter exerted a great deal of influence. In fact, when he first came to see Truman and told about a lynching, uh, Truman was aghast at what had happened. Uh, he was. That that specific case, it's right after, again, again after both wars, the First World War and the Second World War, were very important in terms of race in America, because in both cases, you had Black people going to war, representing the military in their country, and coming home saying, look what we did. We're proud of our patriotism. We pitched in. And let's end Jim Crow and give us the rights that we should have, according to the Bill of Rights, the 14th and 15th Amendments. Both cases, because of that, you have these racial clashes and uh, moments of horrific violence across the country. And in this specific case, after World War II, um, Walter White goes into the White House to sit with Truman. And he starts telling him about these various cases of violence that Truman hadn't heard of and ultimately sets on the story of a guy named Isaac Woodard, who we brought up earlier, who was blinded. He, he left the military still in uniform. Uh, he had earned medals overseas fighting in World War II. And um, he was on his way home and was beaten and blinded uh, right here in America. And nobody was ever charged with a crime. And when Walter told Truman this, Truman said, according to Walter's version, oh, my, we have to we have to do something. And that's Walter's version of events. But what we do know is the very next day, uh, Harry Truman wrote his attorney general, Tom Clark of Texas, and say, look, this is what's happening in our country. We have to do something. And that's when this extraordinary moment, like you might say the modern civil rights movement, at least within the White House, that's where it began. Uh, an interesting a little uh, story you wrote about in your book, AJ, is that in the fall of 1920, Walter applied for membership to the secret society that espoused the theory of America for Americans, the Ku Klux Klan. Nothing came of his application. It was his first attempt to infiltrate the KKK, a goal that was about to turn into an obsession. And if anyone could have done it, it, it would have been Walter, right? It would have been. And, um, you know, listeners should, should just understand that uh, the modern KKK was founded in a ceremony atop Stone Mountain, right outside Atlanta, where Walter was from, in the year 1915, and quickly because, uh, to some degree, because of the movie Birth of a Nation, the first Hollywood blockbuster, which depicted the KKK as this, uh, you know, wonderful thing, um, uh, it spread very quickly across the country, right at the time of Walter's rise with the NAACP, and he became obsessed, obsessed with stamping out and fighting the KKK. And um, during my research, when I found his 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 application, because he applied to be a member. And um, when you come out with a book like this, there's there's always regrets like you wish, you know, a sentence you regret or something you wish you put in and you didn't. And there's, you know, there's an eight page insert of photos. And I should have put his application in there because it's just mesmerizing to look at. Well, I saw a photo of him. You have it in the front of uh, the book. And I have um a pre, it's an advanced reading copy. So it doesn't have your index. It doesn't have a few other things, but it does have a picture of Walter and it's uh, very interesting. So we've got about uh, two to three minutes left. Uh, and there's still so much that I would have wanted to cover. So um, we should narrow down what it is that we're going to talk about with a couple of minutes we have left. Um, let's see. 
Well, you know, Bob, firstly, let me thank you so much for having me on your program. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, and I, I just want to say that I, I, I hope people read the book and, and tell others about it. Uh, it's been reviewed well, you know, um, so far we had one little hiccup with one angry reviewer, but, um, every other review has been very strong. And, you know, it's, again, I mentioned this earlier, it's not easy coming out with a book like this. No. Um, it's stressful. And, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did it and I hope people read it. Uh, one of the other things that you wrote about was after, uh, some of, uh, the, the ire that, uh, Walter stirred up, especially after his, a novel, Rope and Faggot, a biography of Judge Lynch. The the church uh, was so stirred to fury uh, in the South. Uh, and it, But Walter had gathered statistics that illustrated how the states that had the highest number of lynchings all had a higher percentage of people who considered themselves Christian churchgoers. In Mississippi, it was 87 and a half percent that were Baptists and Methodists. In Georgia, 89.8%. Common were statements such as this from former South Carolina's governor, Cole Blees. In the South, we believe that white supremacy is a part of the Christian religion. Boy, that's like shoveling against the tide, isn't it? I, I believe so. And I want to make sure listeners understand this is not what A.J. Bain was writing or what A.J. Bain was saying. Right. We're talking about this is what Walter White was writing in his book uh, that came out in 1927. So, uh, um, yeah, this infuriated people. It, Walter was really good at making people really, really mad. And um, but he was utterly, utterly fearless. And he took on these southern demag demagogues. Uh, throughout his life. And, um, but yeah, when he wrote about the church, that really stirred up quite a bit of uh, anger. Well, we're uh, pretty much out of time. And uh, what I would like to do is to reintroduce you. You've you. been uh, listening to a conversation with my guest, A.J. Bame, author of White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. This is a book that is worthwhile, very worthwhile to read. I would hope that uh, many of you go out and purchase it because, uh, well, not because you're going to get angry, because you will, but just because it's so well written and writes about a part of our history that many of us are less aware of than we should be. So, AJ, I want to thank you very much for coming on, and uh, I wish you well and high success for your book. I so appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Politics, A Love Story. I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org. And consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.